You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7 today. So you can uh, make your way there if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, um, page 842 uh, is where you will find, find Mark chapter 7. Uh, we're continuing on. We've got another couple months uh, up until Easter Sunday uh, in the Gospel of Mark, charging our way through week by week. Uh, the past couple weeks, we've observed uh, Jesus is the powerful one, and we've also then observed Jesus is the sending one. Today, in Mark chapter 7, we're going to see he's also the purifying one. And so I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things... You do. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, 
For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, as we have heard your word, we ask now that you would fill us with your spirit, soften our hearts, that we may delight in your presence, sharpen our minds, that we may discern your truth, and shape our wills that we may desire your ways. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So Jesus is the purifying one. And in ways which will shatter the paradigm of the Jewish leaders of the day, Jesus here reveals that he has come to purify three things. He comes to purify our devotion, to purify our hearts, and to purify all peoples. Our devotion, our hearts, and all peoples. So first, Jesus comes to purify our devotion. As Mark 7 opens, a delegation of Pharisees and scribes comes from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. Uh, His ministry, his sending out of the 12 and their ministry, it's generated some stir. Uh, There's some intrigue around who he is and what he's doing. But even more than intrigue, it's created a lot of envy. We see throughout the Gospels that the Jewish leaders are actually far less interested in understanding Jesus than in finding things to condemn him for and ultimately kill him for. And they quickly find something in Mark 7, that Jesus' disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Uh, Now, you and I hear that, and we might think, well, that's kind of gross. We immediately think hygiene. Uh, We wash our hands so that we don't spread germs, so that we don't get sick. But the issue here in the first century isn't hygiene, it's about being ceremonially clean. It's a matter of worship, a matter of devotion. The Israelites were called, set apart, holy people. And to live in light of that God-given identity that they had had for centuries, God gave laws and commandments by which they would display their purity, by by which they would display their set-apartness. And washings were part of of that. For priests, uh, for sacrificial animals, for people after they'd had different kinds of illnesses and bodily discharges, washings made them ceremonially clean so that they could again approach God in worship. Uh, Washings became really this, this tangible, visible aid to remind the Israelites and to display to other people who they were. That in identity and that in all of their lives, they were the ones who were set apart, who were devoted to the one true God. 
But over the centuries, Jewish leaders introduced rules on rules on rules on rules. They created fences around the actual laws of God, around the actual commands of God, so that they would never even get close to violating the law itself. And scholars have observed that the Pharisees in particular, this group of Jewish leaders, were obsessed with purity. They were obsessed with purity. Uh, The Mishnah, an extensive oral tradition, uh, which was later then written down, which is how we know what it is. By some counts, fully 25% of the Mishnah has to do with purity. Deals with how to be clean ceremonially as a worshiper of God. The intent of these rules on rules on rules, the intent was honorable, and it usually is. It usually is. The problem is that in seeking to keep the rules, we can so quickly miss the point of the rules. God's laws and commands are always about living out the identity that he has given his people. It's always grounded in relationship, in God's covenant love for his people. And living out God's commands, that's the way that we reflect our love for God back to him. It's how we acknowledge and agree that he is God, that we are not, and that our greatest good in this world is to live according to his beautiful design. But when rules replace the relationship with God, faithful devotion immediately is replaced with this facade of empty activity. The traditions, the rule-keeping, so quickly take precedence over actual love and relationship with God. And this is why Jesus so harshly rebukes the Pharisees and applies this prophecy from the prophet Isaiah to them. He says, You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You don't love me. You don't even know me. Your worship, your devotion is empty. He says it's vanity. It's in vain. This whole system of fences around the law has functionally removed God from the picture altogether. Moreover, Creating fences in one place has explicitly violated the law of God in another. It's like, it's like taking pains, great pains, to install the world's most technologically advanced, impenetrable security system in your house, but leaving your front door wide open. Jesus offers an example, though he says in verse 13, this is just one of many examples. He references this practice of Corbin where a person devotes financial or material resources to God, but in process of doing that, violates the fifth commandment back in Exodus chapter 20 to honor your father and honor your mother. Now, assuming the best possible intent of the Pharisees, which is risky to assume their best possible intent. There's not a whole lot to back that up in many places in Scripture, but let's try it. Assuming the best possible intent, they know the Ten Commandments. They know them really well. So the most likely scenario here would be a son who anticipates that his aging parents have everything they need. They're they're taken care of, they're good. And so he then, the son, devotes a portion of his money to God, to, to the ministry of the temple or something like that. It's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing he's doing. But then let's say an emergency or an unexpected tragedy strikes and now his parents need some of that devoted money He needs to use some of the money he's devoted to God to actually honor and care for his mother and father. But the Jewish leaders won't let him. Why not? 
because he's made a vow in devoting this money to God. And Numbers chapter 30 says, if you make a vow to God, you can't break it. And, in the Jew- and the Jewish leaders have, in their tradition then, decided that Numbers chapter 30 overrules Exodus chapter 20. It's a great fundraising tactic. It's a great fundraising tactic, but verse 13, it makes void the word of God. It makes void the word of God, even assuming the best possible intent of the Pharisees, that they're not just greedy, this isn't just a greedy financial move. The tradition that they have implemented tramples the very core of the law of God, the Ten Commandments. There's a reason that the laws of God are the laws of God. There's a reason that God gave the laws that he gave, and not more and not less. With less, we would lack sufficient guidance for our lives. But with more, we would so quickly violate one part of it in order to uphold another which is what Jesus is categorically rejecting here, using Numbers chapter 30 to overrule Exodus chapter 20. The intent of fences around the law might be good, but in practice, elevating traditions always fails. Always fails. So we must always take caution to pursue the laws and the commandments of God. Not more than that, not less than that. But as we do, and even more importantly, We must remember their purpose. Purified devotion, purified worship is always about living out the holy identity that God has given to his people. And we read in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus came to purify our devotion, to restore it to that actual purpose. Not so that that you and I might create a facade of holiness or purity or a flurry of holy and pure-looking activity, but that we might actually live as holy and pure people in relationship with him. That's what Jesus came into the world to do. And that, of course, has to happen from the inside out, which is why, second, Jesus has come to purify our hearts. Not only to to purify our devotion, but to purify our hearts. The laws of God are good, they're good. We, we miss that sometimes as Christians who, who, who rest in grace and rest in mercy, and we should rest in grace and mercy, but the laws of God are good. Jesus lives his life in careful observance and obedience of them. And he says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that he has come not to abolish any of them, but to fulfill them. Jesus' life and ministry, though, points to the reality that God has always been and is and will always care first and foremost about the heart, about our hearts. The heart, the, the center of emotion and volition, the center of our will, it's the focal point of God's redemptive, saving work that then from there ripples outward into the lives of other people and into society, into the world around us. So starting in verse 14, there's this fantastic question here. Where does sin really come from? What really is it that that makes somebody unclean? What really is it that defiles someone? And the answer to that question is that it's much deeper and it's much closer to home than you and I like to think, than we wish it was. We like to think that it comes from outside of us. We like to think that it comes from how messed up the world is. We like to think that it comes from Super Bowl halftime shows. 
other people, bad people, these are the ones who corrupt and pollute and fracture the world. And we, the better people, unfortunately, I mean, we live in the same world, so unfortunately, we're going to become unclean and defiled ourselves by proximity to them. Is that not how we think? Is that how we wish it worked? And Jesus is saying here, that's a cop-out. As he rebukes the Pharisees, as he further explains to his disciples, Sin absolutely does corrupt and fracture God's good world. And we are absolutely affected by that. But if that's our primary lens, if that's our primary lens, we will excuse and distance ourselves from something that we're actually meant to own and repent of. You think the problem is with food, Jesus says? Food passes right through you. Literally, the word in Greek there, it's expelled. It goes into the latrine. That's where food goes. It doesn't go into your heart. It goes through you and into the toilet. The problem is not with the food. It's with you and it's with me. What's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. So goes the, the famous G.K. Chesterton line, incredible line that he wrote in response to the, letters, uh, to the editors of the London Times years ago. They asked people to write in, what's wrong with the world? People wrote all kinds of responses back. G.K. Chesterton wrote, dear sirs, I am. That's it. That's all he wrote. And, Ch- and, I, and I quote that, if you've been at Liberty, you've heard me quote that probably once a year. I quote it once a year here because I quote it to myself once a day. I need to quote it to myself once an hour. Sin comes not primarily from our environment, but from within our own hearts. These, the heart, these are the factories that produce, as Jesus details here, evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. What's wrong with the world? I am. I am. And this is so connected to observing traditions and commandments and how we think about traditions and commandments. Because when we try to make ourselves holy, when we think that's actually attainable, we will build fences around the law and end up violating it. Always. We will wind up always with a heart that's far from God, a heart that instead of trusting him, trusts our own efforts and our own abilities. So Jesus here mercifully is actually upping the bar for what it means to be clean and pure people. It's the same thing he does in the Sermon on the Mount with the Ten Commandments. It's not simply just avoid murder. Actually, if you hate your brother in your heart, that's the same sin as murdering someone. And here he's saying, it's not just about acting purely. It's not just about living a pure life. You need to truly become pure from the center of your entire being. And this place's purification infinitely beyond the reach of our own obedience and our own performance. And that, friends, is exactly the point. That's the point. It places purification squarely in the realm of dependence, of belief and trust that God must do what you and I never could. Centuries earlier, uh, via the prophet Ezekiel, God promises that he will come and he will rip out dead, hard hearts of stone, and that he will replace them with new and living hearts of flesh. In Jesus, God is now accomplishing that work. He's accomplishing that work. He's dealing with sin at its root. 
All of the ceremonial laws that deal with sacrifices and uncleanness and washings and purification, they will find their fulfillment in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As Hebrews 10 puts it, by this single offering, Jesus Christ offering himself up on the cross, by this single offering, he will perfect for all time we who are being made holy. He will make us perfect as he is purifying us even throughout our lives by a single offering. That's the fulfillment of all those ceremonial laws and sacrifices and washings. And this will have huge ripple effects in the world. Purification in the heart will work its way out from our new hearts and and the new hearts of God's redeemed people to push back what is dark in the world, to right what has gone wrong in the world. But it has to happen in this order. It has to happen from the inside out. If not, it's like pulling weeds without actually ever pulling out the root. It's like treating the symptoms rather than actually dealing with the disease itself. Now, what does all this mean for our lives? It means we have to stop all of our futile efforts of behavior modification. It means we need to stop all of our efforts of simply trying to be good and moral and upright people. That we actually have to trust Jesus to cleanse our hearts. And some of us, many of us, even those of us who consider ourselves to be Christians, are functionally content with a gospel of sin management, with a gospel of respectable conduct, one that says, well, just be disciplined enough, just be self-controlled enough, just act good enough to not let your sin become too big a deal or to affect too many other people. And that is no gospel at all. That is not good news at all. It falls woefully short of actually dealing with sin at its source. It just stuffs sin down just stuffs it down, sweeps it under the rug until stress or age or something else makes it impossible to remain filtered or controlled anymore and then out it comes. One way or another, whatever is in our hearts is going to find a way out. It's going to find a way out. If you're angry and bitter, that's going to come out sometime. If you're arrogant, that's going to come out sometime. If you're lustful in your heart, that's going to find a way to come out, even if you're the most self-controlled person in the world. I am not the most self-controlled person in the world. But in college, I broke my collarbone uh, playing rec basketball. Rec basketball game, overzealous kid put his forehead into my collarbone. Forehead won, collarbone lost. At the hospital afterward, uh, they gave me some morphine for the pain, which was substantial. And sitting there in recovery, watching TV, and I don't remember this at all, a friend of mine had to tell me about this whole account later. Watching TV, there was an attractive woman that came on the TV, and I just blurted out, oh, I like that. (laughs) And right, we laugh because it's it's ridiculous, (laughs) and you're a little uncomfortable, and that's okay. So we laugh, but what is that? That's objectification. That's that's lust in my heart. Here's the thing. It wasn't the morphine's fault. And it wasn't the TV's fault. All the morphine did was pave an unobstructed, unfiltered path directly to what was there in my heart. That's all that did. That's all it did. Medicine, age, stress, whatever. 
When you lose the ability to be self-controlled, when you lose the ability to be filtered, what is going to come out of your heart? What's going to come out of your heart? Because when we're honest about that, some of what's going to come out of our heart is really dark. And it's really ugly. But this is what Jesus came into the world to rescue you from. This is what Jesus came into the world to rescue you from, to purify you from, in a way that only he can. So stop trying to purify yourself from the outside in and let Jesus purify you from the heart. In just a couple weeks, we'll start the season of Lent together. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It's a great prayer to pray all throughout the year. But as we specifically focus on repentance during the season of Lent, as we hone in on our desperate need for Jesus to cleanse us and purify us from our sin, join the psalmist in praying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus is the purifying one. He is the only one who at the heart level can invite us and lead us into the way everlasting. Now the gospel's paradigm of purification will also shape our pursuit of of community, uh, of mercy, of relationships with other people. And so it's no accident then that in Mark's gospel, what we read next is that Jesus has come into the world to purify all peoples. So purify our devotion, purify our hearts. Third and finally, Jesus has come to purify all peoples. Jesus travels north, we read there in verse 24, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's modern-day Lebanon, which is how you pronounce that word if you don't live in central Pennsylvania. Lebanon. Lebanon is the central. Okay, you guys got that. All right. Modern-day Lebanon is Gentile territory. A place where Gentiles live, non-Jewish people live there. And immediately, Mark says, a woman whose daughter has a demon comes and falls down at the feet of Jesus and begs for his help. One scholar refers to verse 26 as a, quote, crescendo of demerit. Crescendo of demerit. In other words, uh, women shouldn't approach rabbis. That wasn't something you did in this cultural moment. But here's a woman approaching Jesus. Not only that, she's a Gentile. So she's not a clean Jewish person, she's an unclean Gentile. Not only that, she lives in this region that's infamous for its paganism. Not only that, her daughter has an unclean spirit. Unclean, unclean, unclean. It's across the board unclean. In response to this woman's request, Jesus says something that is notoriously difficult to understand. And you might have even like balked a little bit when I read it earlier. Did you balk a little bit at that? Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jews, in their hatred for Gentiles, would often refer to Gentiles as dogs. It's a pejorative. It's an insult. Dogs eat garbage. Dogs eat corpses sometimes. Gentiles like that are unclean. They're inferior beings to superior Jews. So at first... This sounds like Jesus is hooking into that and insulting her. But this is where the original language makes such a difference, and it's so worthy of study as you have the opportunity to do that. The word Jesus uses for dogs here is different from the word that Jews would use to insult Gentiles. Jesus' word here is not the unclean street dog that the Jews would use as an insult, but the diminutive word for a household pet. It's a word for a a household puppy, a dog that lives in the home with a family. 
And Jesus here is offering a mini parable. What is he teaching? As he says elsewhere in the Gospels, he has come first to the people of Israel. Uh, It's part of his fulfillment of the mission of God. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, through Abraham and his descendants, he's going to bless all nations, all peoples of the earth. And so Jesus, who is a descendant of Abraham, comes first to Israel, always with a view to how the gospel is going to flow outward from that into the rest of the world. But the picture here in this parable is a household table. And the Israelites are the children sitting around that table. To fulfill the mission of God, they're the ones who are going to be fed first. They're they're going to be given the first opportunity to hear the good news and to respond to it. Just like in our homes, if we love our children, which hopefully you do, you don't feed the dogs in your house before you feed your kids, right? Pets take, take second chair, hopefully, in your home, hopefully. Now, even though Jesus uses a different word for dog here, it is a racially charged image, is it not? Why not, if you're Jesus, use a completely different metaphor? Like, why not steer far clear of something that could be construed the wrong way and offend this woman? It's because the gospel, for every single one of us, is always a call to both humility and confidence. It will always offend us, tempt us to be offended in multiple ways, and force us to humble ourselves, but then to step confidently into the offer that is held out by Jesus. Tim Keller refers to this as rightless assertiveness. Rightless assertiveness. In other words, we come to Jesus asking him to give us not what we deserve, but what we don't deserve. We ask him to give us what we need, not because we have a right to it, not because of our merits, but because of his. And that's exactly what Jesus' mini parable here offers this woman. He has come into the world and he goes first to the Israelites. And the offense of that could easily lead this woman to walk away. Can you imagine how offended you would be if someone says, I'm not actually here for you. I'm here to help someone else. And you're in desperate need like this woman is? You and I would be tempted to be offended and just walk away and say, forget this. I'm out. Or it could be a moment to humble yourself It's a moment that could make her realize that she actually has no basis, that she actually has no right to ask anything from Jesus. And then it's an opportunity to ask anyway, which she does. And she's my hero because with a faith-filled and super witty one-liner, it's so on point, I can only imagine Jesus like bursting out in a little laughter after she responds this way. He says, she says to him, Jesus, have you ever seen kids eat? There's some crumbs on the floor, I know it. Certainly there's some crumbs for a dog like me. And you know what? I'll take the crumbs. I'll take the crumbs. And is that not the gospel of the grace of God? You don't deserve this, ask anyway. You don't deserve this, ask anyway. This woman is a beautiful example of what it takes for any one of us to enter the kingdom of God. Take hold of the eternal life which you and I do not deserve but which is held out to you by Jesus anyway. Jesus came into the world to purify all peoples and here is a tiny glimpse of that. Back in verse 19, there's this parenthetical line about Jesus declaring all foods clean. And since this, of course, is the Apostle Peter's account that we have here in the Gospel of Mark, no doubt Peter is recalling this episode recorded in Acts 10 and 11. 
where Peter has this vision of all kinds of food that are, that's considered unclean. And God says to him in the vision, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And immediately after that vision, Peter is summoned to the house of a Gentile man named Cornelius, where Cornelius and other Gentiles believe, and they themselves enter the kingdom of God. In other words, if Jesus can declare all foods clean, how much more will he declare all peoples clean? That's what Peter experiences in Acts 10 and 11. That's what Mark is writing here in Mark 7. Putting all of this together then, because all hearts are unclean, because sin is in the heart, and that's what really defiles not, not just one type of person, but that's what defiles all people, so too now can all people be made pure and cleansed from the heart through the work of Jesus. And Jesus then, at the very end of Mark 7, proceeds to another Gentile region, to the Decapolis. And this, he heals this man who is both deaf and nearly mute. It's another demonstration that the purifying one, Jesus, has come to purify peoples of all ethnicities, of all races, of all kinds of groups of people. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, where Isaiah anticipates the day that God himself will come and will save people. And he, it says in Isaiah that then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And it's also a look forward, a look ahead to the day when Jesus will bring complete purification for his people. When a great multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation and people will gather around the throne of God and Revelation chapter 19 and it will be granted to them, this beautiful bride of Christ granted to them to clothe themselves with fine linen that is bright and pure. The bride of Christ gets to wear pure white linen on the day that we meet Jesus for all eternity. And I'm trusting in this that you're hearing some implications for community and mercy, for our relationships with our family and friends and neighbors and coworkers. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy when our warped understanding of purification leads us away from broken and sinful people or just people who are radically different from you and me instead of toward them. It's a tragedy when in a misguided effort to make ourselves pure, we violate God's actual command to love our neighbor as ourselves. So just one example of that. I love that we partner with the ministry called Peace Promise. I love that we partner with Peace Promise and that many of you serve in different capacities with Peace Promise. I love that there are women in Peace Promise who go into strip clubs in Harrisburg and across central Pennsylvania to build friendships with the women who work there, with the performers there. With, with their warped understanding of purification, Pharisees and scribes would never do that. But you know who would do that? Jesus would do that. Jesus would do that. It's the difference between seeking to purify yourself and asking Jesus to be one who purifies all peoples. So friends, let us stop putting fences around God's law. Let us stop putting fences around our churches and around our homes and lives. Let us stop putting fences, most importantly, around our own hearts. Because all of this comes from a warped understanding of purification and how it happens. If we think we can purify ourselves, you will, no doubt, add to and violate God's law. You will locate and seek to deal with all of the symptoms and the effects of sin without actually dealing with its source. 
And you will wall yourselves off from people who are made in the image of God, who far more than being a threat to our purity are actually in desperate need of receiving the very same mercy, the very same invitation that is held out to us by Jesus. So with rightless assertiveness, may we and may many others through us be people who ask for the crumbs. We will find, praise God, that in Jesus we ask for crumbs and he invites us to his feast. We acknowledge that we are dogs and he calls us children. And instead of the futile efforts to purify ourselves, Jesus himself offers his own life to purify us from the heart. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are the one, the only one, who could actually deal with sin at its root who could actually purify us from the heart where sin actually resides. And we confess and we acknowledge and we ask for your forgiveness for the warped ways in which we've understood that and lived in light of it, how we've created fences around your law and around our lives and around our own hearts. We ask now that you would continue the purifying work that you have begun in us, that you would lead us to be people who are pure, but not, not just as a means of outward actions, but that you would truly purify and cleanse our hearts. That that's, that that's where you would do the work that only you can do, and that we would live out all the implications of that as a response. We're grateful, even now as we come to this table, that you have called us sons and daughters, children who get to sit at the table, who get to feast at your table, even as we sang earlier, once your enemies, now seated at your table. And we come now to this, the table where we remember, where we acknowledge, where we participate in the, the body and blood that you shed on our behalf to save us from our sin, to wash us and cleanse us by the, by the sacrifice of yourself. So meet us as we come to this table, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.